And it's all about the stories that we tell ourselves and the kind of narrative around, you know, our performance or, um, you know, our kind of day-to-day or our knowledge or, or whatever it is. So just to break that down a bit, obviously at the beginning of this, I know that you've got some incredible women lined up to be part of your podcast. And I just, you know, if I look at my name next to theirs, I think, God, what am I doing here? No one wants to hear what, what I've got to say. But then you just have to reframe your thinking. And, you know, it's like what I was saying earlier as being a storyteller. So it's not necessarily about me, but it's about the knowledge I have um, from being around all these incredible people and being able to share some learnings there. So, yeah, it's just kind of reframing it and thinking, I know this subject. I do this day in, day out. I am an expert in this field. And I can do this. Welcome to That's What She Said, the podcast for empowering women. My name is Lucienne Shakir, and as a female empowerment specialist, I'm a woman who knows what it's like to lose their mind through a lacking of female sense of self and identity. My aim is to share stories from women around the world to help you see that you are not on your own. If you feel that you are lost in the sea of who am I, these collections of conversations are for you. Sit back and enjoy listening to this phenomenal collective of female voices in That's What She Said. This week, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Hannah Privet to the podcast. Deputy editor at the Times Enterprise Network, this extraordinary woman is growing a hub of information and community for small to medium-sized businesses who are navigating their way through, let's face it, some pretty tricky circumstances with COVID and Brexit. I loved our conversation and I just know you will too. Enjoy. Something that I don't talk about very often was when I first started coaching, I was asked to go down to London to do a couple of sessions. And after one session, I was asked on the day and after another, I was asked, you know, if if it could turn into something else. And it's actually one of the reasons why I ended up working with men, with women in the, in the early days. Um, so it's interesting to hear your experience as well. And it's not something that I often speak about. But anyway, this isn't about me, it's about you. Um, so when it comes to diversity and inclusion, what would you say are some excellent examples of good practice that you see in, in the corporate and entrepreneurial world, do you think? I mean, there there are a few ex- examples that stick in my mind, but I think it's probably, you know, best to say from the outset that nobody has got this exactly right. I think um, the other thing is that there's also a lot of smoke and mirrors, right? So everyone wants to be seen to be doing the right thing. Lots of the behavior is very tokenistic, particularly at the moment when it's very trendy to talk about diversity and inclusion on multiple different levels. So I think it would be disingenuous to say, sit here and say, you know, X company or Y company is getting this right because I just don't think across the board anybody has got it perfect, which is fine because we're all on a journey, right? So I think that it's about being honest about that and saying we know we haven't got this 100% right, but here are some of the practical steps we're taking. 
Um, and it's also about investment and putting their money where their mouths are. So one of the examples I'm, I'm most comfortable talking about is News UK. So the company that I work for that um, produces the Times and the Sunday Times, as well as owning, you know, the Sun, Times Radio, etc., Talk Radio, um, is that, you know, we're very kind of committed as an organisation to diversity and inclusion. Um, but that goes beyond just talking about it. So somebody in the team that I was previously part of, which is the commercial content arm of News UK called Bridge Studio, um, there's this incredible uh, senior designer, creative director called Satch. Um, and she sets, well, she had an idea for a creative agency that was showcasing the work of um, ethnic minority um, and, you know, uh, artists from a diverse background. And News UK backed her. They invested money, they invested resource, they invested people's time uh, to get this off the ground. And it's doing phenomenally well. You know, it's successful financially, but it's also more than that. It's being recognised in the industry. It's winning awards. Um, and the artist's work speaks for itself. It's extraordinary. So that's called Studio Pipe. People want to check it out. So I think I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's going beyond kind of words and putting things into action. I do remember a few years ago interviewing somebody called Karen Blackett, um, who is the CEO of Group M now. So I think it was Mediacom back in the day when I interviewed her. Um, and she spoke really passionately. It, it was a, a while ago, but it was about um, women re-entering the workplace after having children and how kind of tricky that can be. But it was all about her leading by example. So not being afraid to say, I need to leave the office at, you know, five o'clock tonight. I've got to get back to get the children or I need to go to a parents' evening or I want to go to watch the school play this morning. And she said to me that she was always in charge of her own diary and she would block out parts of her day, you know, accordingly so that she could be there for her family as well as the business. And I do think that's another kind of trend. It's all about leaders leading from the top. Um, and, you know, taking that responsibility seriously. So, and modeling good behavior. And it's not just about women. And this is one of the areas I think many companies fall down is that the women will model the good behavior. There are a few, you know, high profile women in business who will say that they take time out, like Karen, uh, to be with their family or they will work flexibly but it's still rarely the case with men. And until men are kind of picking up more of the slack um, at home with caring responsibilities, et cetera, we all know that, you know, that is really important to, to closing the gap, um, the, the gender pay gap, um, but also that kind of responsibility gap that we often feel the burden of as women. So I think that's still an area where there's lots of work to do. Yes, definitely. I completely agree with that. And you mentioned in your first question around the gravitas, having the gravitas of the times behind you and that, you know, and as you got older, that giving you more confidence. Do you think with women in, in the entrepreneurial space that there needs to be something in place for creating that, that level of, of gravitas behind them? Or do you see examples of women in an entrepreneurship who truly believe in what they're doing and who are, you know, paving the way for other females as well? What do you, what do you see happening there? 
I think it's certainly true to say that men are more often likely to put themselves forward. So, you know, if I say, if I put out a tweet saying I'm looking to speak to you, an entrepreneur about this or a business owner about that, they will be very forthcoming about their achievements and, um, you know, they're just, it's that, it's that whole thing about women, if they have, um, or, you know, nine out of 10 of the, the skills required for a new job, they might go for it. Whereas if men only have two, they'll still go for it. It's that, it's that whole kind of, whole kind of thing and dealing with the imposter within and, uh, and confidence. So I think that you, you can't generalize. I know we do, and we're doing that right now. Um, and also I don't think it's always useful, um, to generalize too much because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if um, female business owners read that they have um, lower, you know, lower levels of confidence or that they're struggling to find finance or, you know, whatever it may be, they might read that and say, the odds are stacked against me. I'm not even going to try. Um, so I think it's really important that we you know, and one of my jobs as a journalist is to kind of shine a light on those business business owners, female founders who are doing incredibly well um, and who are incredible role models for other other women, girls, you know, who are kind of um, climbing the ladder behind them. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've we've mentioned the imposter a couple of times and it was it was lovely when you first joined you, you mentioned it, you know, straight away around feeling the imposter. And, um, you know, I've I've felt it too during during this. We've had a couple of technical issues. We're now kind of up and running and it's fine. But it's interesting how that's that's driving in the background all of the time and how we need to call it out. So I just want to ask, you know, how do you go about you you came into the podcast you mentioned a little imposter syndrome and then you know you you create these phenomenal answers and you have this this massive wealth of knowledge how do you bridge that from the immediate imposter to then having that confidence to speak about what you talk about I think and this is one of the things my coach um, taught me recently, actually. So I was having some public speaking training to go alongside the work I've been doing in events and radio, etc. And it's all about the stories that we tell ourselves and the kind of narrative around, you know, our performance or, um, you know, the, our kind of day-to-day or our knowledge or, or whatever it is. So just to break that down a bit, obviously at the beginning of this, I know that you've got some incredible women lined up to be part of your podcast. And I just, you know, if I look at my name next to theirs, I think, God, what am I doing here? No one wants to hear what, what I've got to say. But then you just have to reframe your thinking. And, you know, it's like what I was saying earlier as being a storyteller. So it's not necessarily about me, but it's about the knowledge I have um, from being around all these incredible people and being able to share some learnings there. So yeah, it's just kind of reframing it and thinking, I know this subject, I do this day in, day out. I am an expert in this field and I can do this. So, you know, that's today. But I think another example I'd like to give just because it's something, it was the first time that I really kind of put this 
reframing into practice was last year towards the end of the year, I hosted a, a webinar, um, a virtual event. It was a Times and Sunday Times branded event with a commercial client. And um, people who have watched this actually won't know because it was edited out in the final edit, um, but people who watched it live would have done. And basically, I lost my place in the script. So I had, you know, kind of four or five page script. I thanked a speaker who hadn't spoke yet and introduced the next panel, which was, you know, a session away. And it was the first time, having done quite a lot of these events now, it was the first time I've really messed something up. Um, and, you know, we all have kind of, we all misspeak. We all correct ourselves. Sometimes we're not as concise or articulate as we'd like to be. That's part of the, you know, that's part of the joy of public speaking or not. Um, but that was the first time I got something wrong. And I, there was a voice in my ear, anybody who's done a webinar, you know, will know you, get, you have a production guy in your ear saying, oh, and I think we've jumped ahead in the script here. You actually need to do X, Y, and Z. And just the kind of weight of that moment, looking down the lens, knowing there were several, you know, hundred people watching and just having to pull it back and kind of regain control of the show, um, reassert your authority, um, show that you're in control of the situation because that's your job as a host, right? Is to be in control and for people to feel safe with you hosting and kind of orchestrating this great event. So, and then after that, I was very upset. So I, I pulled myself together. We got through the show. It went really well. All the feedback was great. But then it was about subsequent to that, how I thought about it in my own mind. And, you know, I went for a large glass of wine. Um, I may have had an odd tear just because I'm a sensitive flower. Um, but then after that, when I spoke to my coach, I said, oh, this happened. First time I've really messed something up. But we reframed it to think, Something happened um, that was, you know, fairly serious, um, but I pulled it back. Actually, I just took a breath. I physically took a deep breath and said, sorry, made up an excuse. I then made a little joke about somebody being so good. I thanked him twice and on with the show. And actually, the thing that I take away from that now is that I know I can mess something up and I can pull it back. And actually, I find that huge comfort because things like that are going to happen. And knowing that on the spur of the moment, I wasn't rabbit in the headlights. I just got on with it. That's, yeah, I, I actually think that's a really, that's a really good thing to have in my toolkit. So, yes, I hope I haven't rambled on too much. No, no, I love that. And, oh, God, I can just feel the, you know, it's almost like the rug is just pulled out from underneath you when something like that happens. And what you do in that moment, I can feel, I can totally feel that. And res and so many people listening will resonate with you. And you're so right. It's what you do with it afterwards because it could eat away at you and it could impact how confident you are in future. And um, so that's great work that you've done on that. And I love that you threw in a little joke that, he was so good. You heard from him twice. Absolutely brilliant. Um, amazing, Hannah. Um, so what drew you to the Times Enterprise Network? How do you find yourself there? Well, I guess it's the kind of culmination of my career so far. So in that, I've been writing about entrepreneurs and kind of growing businesses for about 10 years. I've been working with the Times on and off in that period as a freelancer, also within their commercial team um, on the commercial content side. So I did feel like there was a gap in the market um, for 
one of the kind of big media brands to own this space. So we're really focused on fast growth companies and, and businesses that are scaling up. So usually between kind of 5 million and 250 million because we felt there was a real gap there. So there's lots out there for startups. Um, there's lots out there for small and kind of micro businesses and um, sole owners, etc. And there's a lot out there for kind of big business. And there's also lots for the tech community. So they're really well, well served by the likes of Sifted, which is brilliant. But there was a part there that we felt was missing. Um, and it was something I've actually wanted to start or be involved in starting for a long time. So I actually wrote a proposal for something very similar to what we're doing now four and a half years ago. So I think that just shows that I've been passionate about it for a long time. Um, and it's also the opportunity to start something new. Um, so to be involved in effectively a startup, but a corporate startup, we have all the might of News UK behind us. We have all the great brands. We have, you know, my editor um, on the project and also the business editors on the Times and Sunday Times are just incredible journalists and editors and a mine of information um, and contacts, et cetera, et cetera. So I just knew it would be a really exciting project to work on, um, particularly, I guess, at a senior level and to really help shape. So, um, yeah, and, I, and the other thing I guess I would add to that is on the diversity front, that was something that I was passionate about from the get-go. So making sure that we are speaking to entrepreneurs of all different backgrounds. So different ethnic minority founders and, you know, founders from um, uh, uh, all different sexual orientations, different genders. You know, that was that's really important to me. So uh, I think the more you verbalize that as well, it means people can hold you to it. So... Um, so yeah, anybody listening, if you go and look at the um, the Times Enterprise Network and it's just a sea of middle-aged white men staring back at you, please do drop me a line um, because that certainly uh, wasn't the plan. I love that. Do you, so this proposal that you created four and a half years ago is this what you're now? what you're now doing or was that kind of put on hold and did it come in from somebody else is this your your um I don't like to use the term business baby but I can't think of another way of putting it is this your baby I wrote a proposal for something similar but then life happened I that was when I was pregnant with my first daughter so and my boss at the time was going to take it forward she left it just kind of didn't get the senior eyes that it needed. So this isn't a new thing. What we're doing isn't revolutionary in lots of ways. And we've always covered um, SMEs and entrepreneurs really well. And I think there's been an appetite in the business for a long time to do more. So I'm definitely not saying my idea was unique, but it, it, it didn't get the kind of senior level buy until it needed much later. And there was also an element of timing. So we know that after the financial crisis, um, a huge amount of new businesses were started. And we feel like the same thing's happening again at the moment with COVID. So whether it's, you know, people being forced to start new businesses through redundancy, or perhaps they're reevaluating their work-life balance, or, you know, perhaps they're just reevaluating their life because they've seen how, you know, anything, literally anything can happen. And, you know, now is the time to start and grow a business. 
So we just felt that this was a really great moment in time to kind of put a stake in the ground and say, this is an area we want to own. So, so yes, I do feel a huge amount of ownership and passion for what I'm doing, but that is, um, you know, a sentiment that's shared across the business, I would say. Yeah, brilliant. Um, okay, so we spoke to this a little earlier on when we when we began recording um, around identity and labels. So, as deputy editor, mother, other labels that you might want to have for for our identity, um, we we have needed more support structures than ever during COVID, I believe, as women, as being the the natural kind of caregivers. Um, and many women have um, come back into the home. Many women have left their roles um, to support, you know, their families, etc. Um, I'd love to know what support you needed during the last couple of years to ensure that that you were truly supported through what you needed to do. In terms of support structure, the first thing to say is that I have an incredibly supportive husband. So he works in the same industry as I do. In fact, we both work for the Times. So he is, you know, all too aware of the pressures of deadlines. And, you know, if something needs doing, it needs doing now, etc. The the kind of reality of working for you know, one of the world's best and, you know, best known kind of publications. So it's really great that we have that. And we're also a real team. So we share kind of pick up and drop off of the, of the children. Um, and that's really important. If I have to work at the weekends, which, you know, lots of us do now, um, occasionally um, he'll, he'll kind of pick up the slack with childcare. Um, so, so the, there's that to say. And also, I guess, just talking about things. And he's my biggest supporter. So um, he's just, you know, he'll always listen to any segment I do on the radio, for example. He'll watch back the events I do. If I do have the imposter telling me I can't do something, he's always the person that says, yes, you can. You've got this. So I think that, you know, the importance of that just can't be overstated. Um Apart from him, I also have, you know, incredible family. We moved out of London when Rose, our first daughter, was just a few weeks old uh, to be nearer to my family so that they're able to um, support us as well. Um, And, you know, that's more kind of informal childcare than having kind of the the girls for like big chunks of the day. Um, But again, they're my biggest cheerleaders and they're they're just very sweet and, you know, still buy the paper to see my byline, even if they don't actually read it. They just look at my name in the paper and that's that's good enough for them. And when we did the CEO summit last year, and I can only assume it's because there weren't any people there to take photographs of. The photographer took lots of photos of me that were all, you know, there was five, I think, in the newspaper. So my parents were very happy about seeing their daughter in the Times over and over again. Um, so there's that there's also you know kind of friends um, and mentors I mean we haven't spoken about about mentors yet but I'm sure it's something you talk about a lot in the kind of work that you do Um, and I although I haven't had a kind of formalized mentoring relationship there have been lots of kind of 
senior people throughout my career who've given me advice, even kind of interviewees, you know, who then we we kind of, you know, chat to one another. And one of those is Silla Snowball, who um, is the former chair of AMV, the, the global advertising uh, firm. And, you know, she would give me lots of advice when I was just having children. Um, and we'd just catch up every now and then. And, you know, it's just great to have allies like her on your side. Um, and I also now have, there's four of us and um, the other three um, are just real kind of supporters of mine. And also, I think it's about the active sponsorship. So so one of them, um, Belinda Reigns, owns a, um, an incredible um, events production company called Forgather. And they do lots of work in the kind of tech and business space. And it was actually Belinda who booked me for my first ever public speaking gig. And as a journalist, you kind of fall into public speaking. People start asking you to host panels and to interview people on stage because they assume that because you can interview people for an article, you will naturally be able to interview somebody on a stage. And it's not, of course, it's not a transferable skill. And some people are good at it and others aren't. And it's certainly something that I've worked on over the years. But Belinda was the first person who gave me that opportunity. Um, And she saw something in me. I mean, I certainly didn't see it at that time and not, not that many people would have done. And she's continued to support me and book me for events over the years. And that kind of culminated in last year, she was organizing the CEO Summit for the Times. Um, and that's our big flagship business event, basically. So the, the, the great and good of um, British business come along, all the biggest companies in the country, chairs and um, FTSE CEOs. Um, and being asked to host that was just, you know, extraordinary. And the imposter was loud and clear that day. I, I actually had to sit down when I got the text message from Belinda asking me if I'd considered doing it because all the kind of blood rushed to my head. And I couldn't believe that they would, you know, entrust this hugely, um, hugely important event to me. But anyway, this is about Belinda. And there are a couple of others kind of in our circle that have just, you know, been been so, so helpful, so inspiring. Um, and yeah, I just think, you know, my life would be much poorer without them. Mm. And that and that's been created kind of organically as a mentorship team, would you say, the four of you? So we got to know each other working together at the times. So so one of them was a long-term member of staff for the, for the Times, a very senior person, um, and she went to work for another company. And the other two are kind of contractors for the Times. So we all work together. Um, and in fact, all of us at one point or another have worked on the CEO Summit. So, so, so yeah, we just came together in the work environment. And then, you know, we just we just really kind of gelled and are all really kind of fond of one another and just want to help each other to do well so we'll always you know give each other advice and and just kind of check in and and check everyone's okay particularly over the last you know 18 months which have just been incredibly challenging for pretty much everyone 
Yeah, that's incredible. I love that. I love that. I mean, you've spoken about your coach, you've spoken about uh, mentorship. And I know that you and I have had many conversations, well, many, one <laughs> conversation about the, the charlatanism in the coaching world. And, and it's so refreshing to hear people professionally creating groups that are supportive of one another, which isn't just about the exchange of finance in order to grow, you know, and I, and I just, I find that wonderful. I find that really refreshing. Um, amazing. So I think it's interesting though, if, if I, if I can just add that I, I don't see men doing that so much. I just think that we're, as women, we're more likely to reach out to others for advice and for support. Um, so whether that's in a formal capacity or not, I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, kind of around the business, there probably aren't that many journalists who've had, you know, kind of professional coaching, for example. I mean, I don't know, but I should imagine that's the case. And and I should imagine it's an even smaller percentage amongst amongst the male um, journalists and members of staff, not just at the Times, but, you know, across the industry. And also, yeah, kind of making those support networks. If I think about male colleagues throughout the industry, you know, they if they do meet up, they meet up and they'll have a drink. Maybe they'll talk about some stories that they're working on, but they won't necessarily talk about career development and how they can get to the next stage or the challenges that they're facing and how they can help each other to overcome them, which I think is something that we do. So, um, so yeah, I'd like to see a bit more of that. Yeah, that would be really interesting to research. I, I'm a I'm a big research fan, so that would be something that I would love to research and look into. Amazing. So you mentioned your girls, and um, I'd love to ask you about, you must see some incredible young female leaders through this entrepreneurial um, journalism that you're doing of entrepreneurship and small, small to medium-sized businesses. Um, what do you see as being some of the biggest difficulties that these young women face or potentially that your girls will face going into professional working environments? I feel like it's deeply unoriginal, unoriginal to say it, but I still think that one of the greatest obstacles is the kind of perceived biological clock. So, you know, that women get to a certain point in their careers and they the, the perception at least is that they might want to start a family so I think we all know kind of those anecdotal stories of women kind of in their 20s that perhaps are engaged or perhaps are newly married and them seeing as you know they're seen as being a bit of a ticking time bomb right because if they've just got married surely the the next thing on their list is to go and have babies uh, when the reality is some of us might not want children or you know, they might have already had them or they might be planning to have them later in life or they might be trying and having issues. But it's just these kind of perceptions and, you know, that that's really harmful for women and for their and for their careers. And there's lots of research that shows that, you know, if you support a woman through those years of their life, their kind of childbearing years and when they're starting families, you know, they'll be they'll be um, much more likely to stick with you. They'll be more loyal. Um, they'll work harder. They kind of repay uh, that in space. So it's, the onus really is on, on companies to support them. Um, I'm also really interested in kind of the intersection, I guess, of 
gender and um, ethnic diversity. My two children are uh, mixed race. My husband is um, British Indian. So, so I'm really interested in, you know, kind of their, their experiences over the years. And I just think it's so important that all young people, young women, young young boys too see role models of people who look like them you know that whole idea if you can't be it you can't um sorry you can't if you can't see it you can't be it i think that's really important and i'm researching a story at the moment for the times with um minority ethnic entrepreneurs and them saying just that that you know as as children kind of looking through magazines not seeing anyone that looked like them and I think it's felt even more keenly in business you know kind of looking through the business pages and uh, and seeing you know kind of any non-white faces staring back at you in the you know previously has been a kind of rarity so I think for you know it is in all of our interests to make sure that children young people and even older people starting businesses can look around and see people who look like them doing incredible things absolutely i completely agree um yeah amazing so in terms of looking at role models and seeing representation of ourselves in in the wider world who would you say inspires you hannah i think I would say that I get inspired every day. You know, it's a bit cheesy, um, but I but I do. I'm inspired every day by the people that I speak to. And, you know, the thing about entrepreneurs is that many of them have overcome kind of adversity to get to where they have now. Entrepreneurs, by their nature, tend to be kind of rebels and the underdog, don't they? So, you know, not always. It's not always the case, but often... They might have played up at school. They weren't interested in kind of academia in the traditional sense. They were the ones setting up, you know, a tuck shop um, in the school playground rather than, you know, being in the library doing their homework. Um, so, so it's those people who kind of turned those things around and made a huge success of their life when people were saying, you know, careers development advisors at school or what have you were saying that they were never going to amount to anything. And, you know, would you look at them now? So I find that incredibly inspiring. Um, and, you know, some of the female entrepreneurs I interview in particular will talk, you know, really movingly about kind of their working class upbringing, perhaps. So I interviewed Sarah Willingham the other day who many of us will know from, from Dragon's Den. Um, and, and she talks a lot about her background and kind of where she's from and um, teaching her children, you know, kind of how to live frugally. And um, and they, uh, many of your listeners will probably know they went traveling for three years. They left the UK and, you know, she gave her children a set budget and all these things to kind of teach them about the value of money because her and her husband, of course, have been very successful. Um, so I find people like her incredibly inspiring. Kat Gazzoni, who I've interviewed um, for How I Made It, which is a, an interview slot in the, in the Sunday Times business section. You know, she is from the United Nations. Um, her background is in kind of food security and, and, and child nutrition. And then she's gone and set up Piccolo, which is a baby food and toddler food brand, which takes all the kind of nasty stuff out. But she also launched, so when she launched Piccolo, she could have just launched it solely with 
the purpose of making money because there was a real gap in the market for the kinds of delicious food she's doing. And most of us have tried baby food, right? And it's pretty vile. Um, but at the same time, we don't have time to make our own. So, so being able to choose a brand that makes tasty stuff that we don't have to do too much to is, you know, a winner for me. Anyway, when she started out, she um, started out with the goal of... Um, of making a difference as well, you know, being from the UN, you would have thought so. And she also worked for an NGO in London. Anyway, they do this one for one um, scheme. I guess you call it once a year, usually around Christmas. So when people buy a pouch of baby food or a product, a piccolo product, they give one to a woman's a woman's shelter or a food bank or what have you. And they've given half a million. Um, baby or child meals away since they've been started and I just think that's absolutely extraordinary and we all know the numbers around you know food bank usage since COVID it's never been more important so entrepreneurs like her who are giving back as well as building really sustainable proper businesses making money I just think hats off to them. Yeah, we'll make sure that we um, we include the names of all the people that you've mentioned and their businesses in these in these show notes as well. Because um, there's been Piccolo, there's been Studio Pipe, there's been um, we had Karen Blackett. We've had loads of people mentioned, and I think people might be interested in in finding out a bit more. So I'm sure you can find that with the show notes. Um, yeah, brilliant stuff. So you've done a lot of interviewing, which makes me feel a little nervous talking about the imposter you've done um so much um so many years of journalism um who have you loved interviewing and what have you taken from those interviews what's something some of the lessons that you've learned from those interviews so i mean it's always easier to talk about the things you're working on at the moment isn't it so i'm writing up the sarah willingham piece literally today and one of the things that she talks about, but others often talk about, and actually often women talk about more, is about knowing your strengths and your weaknesses. So I think it's really important, you know, for entrepreneurs do often talk about knowing their skill set and then kind of building a team around them to help, I guess, plug those gaps. So often entrepreneurs are really good at like the vision, but they're less good at the detail. For example, again, generalizing, you know, that won't be true for everyone. Um, but certainly in my experience. So, so I find, I find that really interesting. Um, I've also loved, so, so it's great to interview, you know, kind of big name entrepreneurs and people who are doing incredible things and hear about their journey and kind of take away some lessons there. So perhaps the, the lesson for me is that I know that as a journalist, my strength seems to be in talking to people and listening to them and getting the personal story as well as the business uh, story. And obviously they coincide, but I think lots of journalists and sometimes male journalists don't feel comfortable with that softer side or, you know, they won't um, give so much. Perhaps like perhaps I give too much to my interviews, I don't know. But I always believe that it should be a bit of an exchange so I like to give a bit of myself to my interviewees because I know then they're more likely to give me more of themselves in return. Um, so accepting that that's one of the things I'm better at, like writing profiles and interviews and those kind of warmer pieces. Perhaps I'm not a great news journalist. You know, that's probably not my skill set. You know, like a straight up and down, this thing happened. Probably not so good at that. 
and being okay with that. You know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. We can't all be brilliant at everything all the time. So that's one thing that's really taught me. And I guess one of the other things I would like to say that I've really enjoyed doing over the years, although I haven't done it so much recently, is I used to write this page um, for James Hurley, who's a, a long-term editor and friend of mine at the Times. Um, and it was all about kind of skills. It would often be about kind of young skills or, you know, um, how how we can upskill the kind of younger generation. Um, and it's something that James Timpson, who's a columnist for the Sunday Times, talks a, a lot about. Um, and lots of people will know that Timpson um, hire you know, former offenders, etc. And I went to Bronzefield Prison and casting my mind back now, it was before I had children, so probably six years ago. And I met with, you know, it's a category eight prison, right? So the people who are in there are in there for serious offences. Um, but they had, like many prisons now do, a kind of rehabilitation and reskilling programme. And it was just extraordinary to see, you know, people that had come in you know, that lots of them had had really difficult upbringings, you know, difficult backgrounds um, and just really turning their lives around and learning skills that they would then be able to take and hopefully, you know, apply in the outside world when they were coming up for release. And just hearing about how full of hope they were and then speaking to the, you know, the prison governor about, you know, the rates around reoffending and if and if people are rehabilitated and if they learn new skills, they're less likely to reoffend. So, so, you know, that was an incredibly inspiring and moving experience to be able to do that. And, you know, something I'd love to do more of, to be honest, um, COVID pending. It leads us really nicely into the next question. And I want to be respectful of your time. So this will be the last question, even though I want to ask you millions more. Mm -hmm. um, what's in store for you then for your future? So when I think about my future, I probably break it down like most people into kind of the near term and the longer term. So with the Times Enterprise Network, we've just got started. So professionally, that's my real focus, you know, for the foreseeable, you know, the next kind of 12 months, just we're really in build mode. So building audiences, continuing to build out the product, you know, at the moment we're writing loads of great stories, but we hope to do, you know, video content, podcasts, events, um, in the future so just continuing the rollout and you know making sure as many people are, are viewing reading watching our content listening to our content as possible and you know continuing to shine a light on businesses doing amazing things and for underrepresented groups looking at why that is that they might be having problems so you know if people are coming up against obstacles of starting and growing businesses, our job is to shine a light on why that is and helping them overcome those obstacles. You know, if there's any kind of wrongdoing or if there's anything that government should be doing better, etc. It's our job to expose that. Um, so and hopefully to ensure that it's less of an issue in the future. So I guess that's kind of the Times Enterprise Network. For me personally, there's lots of skills I'd like to continue to develop. So I sometimes go on Times Radio, the early morning breakfast show with Callum McDonald. It's very much a work in progress, you know, until recently I'd never done radio until he asked me to start doing his show. So to continue to do things like that, kind of push the boundaries of what's comfortable for me, that certainly isn't comfortable for me yet. Although at least I managed to sleep the night before now, which I didn't for the first couple of times I did it. Not least of all because it's 
super early in the morning but it's also just you know kind of that that kind of bubbling anticipation and related to that is the events and kind of broadcast side of things that I'd like to continue to build my skills in I've had the coaching so I want to make sure that you know I continue to build the experience and it's the whole kind of use it or lose it thing isn't it so making sure that you're kind of stretching those muscles and keeping them warm and the other thing is you know just continuing to kind of nurture our little family um as I said we we don't live in London we moved into a new house in October I'm sat in our spare room which is the the one room we actually have done thankfully because it's our it's our study um which we all we all need a nice little sanctuary at the moment and seeing as we're spending so much time working from home but we're just really happy I feel an enormous amount of contentment at the moment so you know, again, without wanting to be cheesy, I'm really happy. I love my job. I get so much pleasure out of it. That's not to say it's not really stressful sometimes. And, you know, the kind of burden deadlines and the burden of having people's stories and telling you and sharing all these amazing things with you and you wanting to get it right. Um, you know, there's a huge burden of responsibility there, but I love my job and I'm very grateful that I get to do what I do every day. I can't believe sometimes that this is my job. Um, but also as a family, I'm just really content. We have two beautiful girls, 18 months and four and a half. Um, Rose is the older one. Alice is the little one. My husband's Anesh. We live in a lovely house in a lovely part of Essex and are blessed with brilliant friends and family. So, so yeah, more of the same. Um, and please let us, you know, get out of this pandemic once and for all so that we can all see our loved ones and, you know, go to nightclubs again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely incredible. I've loved every minute of hearing you speak. Um, Hannah, I know that there was a little bit of imposter when you started for both of us. Um, but I feel like I've learned so much about your, your professionalism as well and the things that you've learned on your journey. And to hear that you say that you feel content, it's not something that I hear very often, obviously being in my line of work. So um, in Embrace it with both arms, no matter how cheesy you feel it is. Absolutely amazing. It's brilliant. Hannah, thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me on That's What She Said. And um, I hope to welcome you again someday in future series. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Hannah on the behalf of everybody who's listened today for her incredible insight and wisdom. Um, she is an incredibly astute and informed human being. Go and check her out wherever you can. Uh, you'll find her on LinkedIn as Deputy Editor at the Times Enterprise Network. Thanks so much, Hannah, for being such a brilliant part of this conversation in That's What She Said. Thank you for joining us on another episode of That's What She Said. This is a phenomenal collective of female voices from around the world. And I'm sharing that to empower women to share our stories so that you know that you are not alone. I'm a woman who's gone through it all. Honestly, there is nothing you can tell me that I haven't heard before, either with my clients or through my own life journey. And we need to stop hiding behind a veneer of perfection. These stories are important and we need to share them loudly and proudly. And that's what we're doing on this 
series of That's What She Said. Thank you for joining us. I have been your host, Lucienne Shakir, and it has been an absolute pleasure to spend my time with these phenomenal women. Thank you.